This is Designing the Revolution. It's chapter 29, um, The Revolution After the Revolution, uh, part two. Okay, so in the last episode, we were talking about um, this political crisis, political conflict, crisis management, what happens when it all starts going to shit? You know, how do you deal with all this external pressure from the bad guys, international capital, you know, United States, dare I say it, no disrespect, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And all the internal disappointment, you know, you said you were going to have a wonderful revolution and, you know, we're all poor and miserable and all this sort of stuff. So what we were saying was, yeah, you have a citizens' assembly that creates new legitimacy for, you know, people being objectively poorer, as it were, and uh, you have this dialogical sort of culture and move. And um, these are powerful, right? No guarantees, but these are the new moves. Looking more broadly in terms of the strategy, in some ways that you might call those sort of tactical moves, the strategy, the deeper strategy is to move, move, move away from this conception of politics as a sort of zero-sum game of you know, you get richer and you get voted for or people go poorer and you don't get voted for, you know, this really reductive materialism. And what we want to start exploring, I would suggest, is, is how do revolutions historically survive, those that are successful? Um, what, what is the cultural transformation that takes place? And I'd like to suggest is the big structural move here is to move towards what I would call, you know, you might want to call it something else, but I would call post-materialism. In other words, <clears throat> people aren't interested, they're still interested in stuff, right? People like stuff, and they're big, you know, that goes without saying, but they're not just interested in stuff, or even they're primarily interested in something else, uh, values, culture, uh, and, and such like. So, why does this happen? Well, it should come as no surprise because we've already discussed the biggest, the biggest problem with revolutionary episodes is that by definition, times where there's no money, right? One of the, the main reasons there was a revolution in the first place is because there was no money and people are poor and they've made a mess of it and there's been massive corruption and the climate crisis is destroying crops and it's just a total mess. And great, you know, you come into power and you've got all this mess to sort out and it's not going to get any easier because you've got all these people opposed to you and trying to sabotage you and all the rest of it. So it goes without saying that revolutions that survive have to shift the collective ego away from, hang on a minute, I haven't got that much stuff, to non-material values. Uh, so non-material values, let's take a few sort of stabs at this. The biggest move, obviously, is towards some form of patriotism. So patriotism or nationalism, you know, belief in the fatherland, we've discussed this a bit, you know, you can have progressive forms of it, but often it's rather nasty. But what you can't deny is it's post-materialist. You know, it doesn't matter that I'm poorer uh, because I'm supporting our country, you know, and our country is important, and if I need to be poorer, so be it, and all this sort of stuff. And then you usually have some sort of revolutionary values, you know, liberty, equality. These things aren't primarily material. You're not necessarily getting richer, but you've got some political rights. You haven't got the priesthood telling you what to believe. You're feeling freer, you feel more equal, and you're a lot poorer. But it doesn't matter because you've got these revolutionary values. 
uh, <clears throat> and then you're moving away you know towards a more virtue ethics orientation you know what's the point of my life is it to get stuff and get a mortgage and have a nice house and a career no it's more like what's good you know what's a good person what's it, what 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 is it to be a good revolutionary and you get coming you know these ideas of honor and duty and it's not what it, it's not what it is for me this sort of selfless selfless non-materiality now i'm not necessarily saying you know this is good or bad uh, what i'm saying is it's sociologically it's a no-brainer that if you're going to have a functional social system in the post-revolutionary period then you're obviously going to have to have these post-material values otherwise the whole thing is going to collapse and often it does of course um, and the, the twist in the 21st century of course is is you've got the classical dynamic of everyone becoming poorer which I've just talked about and you've, on top of that you've got this total shit show of, of the climate collapsing and everyone by definition become poorer because the crops are failing and world economic systems collapsing and all the rest of it so you've got that as well all right so the task the task is not to be in denial this is the first point right it, it's absolutely pointless going into a, a revolution with a program that's going to make everyone richer this is i'm going to come to this more in a minute but that's fundamentally like self-sabotaging the revolutionary message beforehand in so much as you need to organize like expectations and afterwards has to be a progressive non-materialist meta worldview for want of a better way of putting it what what does this mean so again it means we're here to support the revolution that means it's not about you anymore it's about the country it's about the revolution it's about these progressive values it's about creating a a sociability society um, <clears throat> in other words it's a question of duty to do this it's a question of honor so these words duty and honor you know in our horizontalist materialist individualist last 30 years they're associated with this fuddy-duddy old style stuff i'm suggesting these notions come back in and they're not intrinsically reactionary right you know lots of revolutions talk about honor and duty and it's because we're all coming together and we've got responsibilities to each other and all this stuff <clears throat> and interestingly enough this is one of the ways of course the revolution is successful because it appeals to values that conservative people uh, can get their head around and so this is how you build the construction of the people in a left popularist sort of way and related to this is the notion of service and the notion of sacrifice like similar ideas but you notice that they're post-materialist values right it's not about getting stuff it's like what can I do for the community what can I do for the country what can I do for revolution what can I do for people in the global south you know in solidarity with other revolutions and, and what have you I'm in service I will step down you know if the citizens assembly wants me to from my position and blah 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 and I'm here to sacrifice if I need to take a pay cut so be it because you know this big social project is worthwhile okay so that <clears throat> obviously like manifests itself through various in social events and social institutions that have to be built through this revolutionary uh, process so so there needs to be a focus one of the ways in which post-materialist values 
start to manifest themselves is a focus on the local, uh, the family, the neighbourhood, the community, and the re-establishment of fraternity, as I said in the French Revolution, you had notions of friendship, the notions of sociability that we've been looking at in some detail. So this might be manifested in, you know, people going to other people's houses, having meals, uh, local community events. In other words, people's, you know, rigid, uh, individualist, materialist, I'm in my bed set, I don't need to think about anyone else. That's got to go. It's going to go anyway because people are going to be forced to cooperate. But it's going to, what we need to do is to evolve this in a pro-social way. So how this might manifest itself in a sort of dynamical sort of way is, look, you've, you've got this social movement. We've been talking about this. This social movement triggers, you know, uh, a social revolution, the change of the regime. The social movement after the revolution doesn't go, oh, yeah, that's all cool. You know, we can go back to watching Netflix or whatever. It's like going, no, right, our purpose now is to make those social formations within the social movement, like spread those through society. So, for instance, you have your social movement and they're going to decide what the policies are, you know, in assembly. And then that's going to move out into the local community and people are going to say, God, it's not very good. You know, this revolution has lost us loads of money. We've lost our jobs. It's really shit. And what the social movement is going to say, yeah, it's not good. Let's have an assembly to see what we can do in the local community to respond to this situation. Is it, is it the revolution's fault or is it just because it's a climate and, you know, all these people are trying to do us in and all the rest of it? What can we positively do? You know, maybe we're going to have these community projects, you know, the community allotments, you know, community gardens, all this sort of thing. Um, and I read, I read something the other day about, um, what was it, um, um, saunas, right, saunas in Finland. So apparently Finland's the most happy country in the world. And they were, you know, trying to say, oh, it's because people have saunas. But, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But you can see, like, the argument is people, a community comes together, whether it's an occupational community or a geographical community, and they're all sitting there, you know, half-dressed, as it were, in their sauna, having a chat, and there's this... There's this process, a bit like a meal, that facilitates this dialogical sociability dynamic, which undoubtedly improves social well-being, right? So, you know, mental health and all the rest of it. So it doesn't matter that you're not going to, you know, Mallorca for your holidays. It doesn't matter that you haven't got a massive pension. You know, you're making new friends, basically, all that sort of stuff. And this relates to this notion of reconnection with nature, or this patriotism which is manifested in a sense of rootedness to your local space, your local environment, the physical environment means nature. Now, you know, to be honest with you, a lot of people, you know, this is a big thing for me, you know, I'm used to being an organic farmer, blah, blah, blah. But the fact of the matter is it's not for everyone and it won't be for everyone, right? So there has to be a pluralism of of post-materialist orientations right some people just are not going to want to do reading right you know some people will other people want to do a local film club other people you know might want to do a comedy club you know there's loads of sociability um ways in which sociability can be manifested uh, within a new uh, a new social sort of project uh, but you know there we are you know there's the nature thing as well 
Then there's the cultural thing. So, you know, one of the things I've always been a bit romantic about is, is pop music in the 1970s. You know, when I was 12, whenever it was, 1978 or something like that. Pop music was a massive, and the reason it was massive was there wasn't actually that much more, uh, there wasn't that, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't a big plurality of different cultural forms. And the great thing was, was in the 1970s, and this is well documented, pop music, popular music, uh, rock music, this had a massive influence on, you know, working class people. Yeah, they were poor, they had shitty jobs, but it's great, like, you know, cultural form that they found meaning in and could express themselves and say fuck you to the establishment and all the rest of it with punk and all that sort of stuff now for me like that's uh, you know that can't be replicated obviously because that was situated in that time and place but the point is is culture culture and art is a, a massively powerful strategy of dissolving reductive materialism and expanding the human experience into so forms of collectivity where people are enjoying themselves because they're doing plays, because they're doing, you know, making stuff, because, you know, they're involved in music and all the rest of it. And lastly, there's religion. Well, religion's, you know, a controversial thing, so it covers a multitude of sins. But sociologically speaking, there's no question that religion is a form of post-materialist culture, right? So there's a plurality of formations of it in the sense that you know you can have everyone going back to the catholic church at one end or you can be designing or initiating new religions at the end other end and i'm you know potentially going to talk about this in a future episode so i'm not going to go into great depth here but it's important whether you again you might not be religious but you can't you can't um pretend that this isn't a major part of the human experience and it will continue to be in the same way as you know, you might be massively into nature, but the fact of the matter is some other people aren't. They might be into Catholicism, for instance. But the idea in terms of a revolutionary strategy post a revolution is that all of these elements need to be proactively promoted so that you dissolve this zero-sum game culture of, oh my God, you know, this revolution is rubbish because we've got less stuff and, and the internet doesn't work properly and all the rest of it. Um, and this then is man how 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 does this how is this brought about? Yeah, well, partially these social movements are going to be at the forefront of creating it, but there has to be a moral and cultural and spiritual leadership element to it. In other words, the people who run the country, you know, whether these are the, the vanguard people, you know, uh, cultural figures, they need to be making the arguments, right? You know, we've discussed arguments on everything, but they are something. And they need to be saying, look, you know, there's more to life than uh, your pay packet. And, um, and this needs to be reflected, of course, in the lifestyle of those leader figures or those social influencers. So there's no point like someone saying, hey, hi, everyone, you know, all you guys can go to rock festivals, but you're not going to have much money. And then I go off, you know, pay myself, you know, 10 million pounds a year because I started a revolution and go flying around the world. So there's two elements. There's, there's the argu argument that you're not, you're fundamentally moving a lot away from the neoliberal. Hey, guys, you know, we're going to have a revolution and you're going to earn loads of money. That's like massively self-defeating. And the person that's saying it has to be going, yeah, you know, you don't have to be a saint, 
but you can't be running around you know with your private jet and all that stuff all right so I just want to before we finish this episode I want to just look at at fascism dare I say so I'm, I want to look a little bit more at the longer term you know a lot of what we've discussed here is you know the first year the first two years you know maybe the first three months you've got these massive challenges what are the pro-social ways of not ending up like with Lenin and shooting people and all this stuff but there's going to be a major competitor as uh, to this pro-social revolutionary project and that's fascism and the reason why it's such a strong competitor paradoxically is because in some ways it's very similar to the pro-social post-materialist revolutionary project in the sense that fascism is a post-materialist and anti-materialist ideology so often this is not properly understood and the the main reason why the whole neoliberal left is facilitating fascism is because it's so stupid <laughs> to be honest with you it's so stupid to see that the reason why fascism has mass appeal is precisely because it's post-materialist. In other words, what fascism gives people is the dark side of the post-materialist orientation. In other words, a love of domination, hierarchy, a love of scapegoating. In other words, it's saying, look, you can be poor, but you know, you can submit yourself to this you know Hitler figure you know Mussolini all this sort of thing you can submit yourself to hierarchy in order to progressive people they're a bit like psychologically illiterate in, in the sense that the reason a strong part of human nature or at least deep deep cultural traits as Eric Fromm said is a fear of freedom in other words you don't want the freedom to become a possessive individualist. You don't want to have to work hard and make loads of money and make all your own decisions. It's lovely, actually, to be told what to do, to have a hierarchy, whether it's a traditional, you know, Catholic religious sort of situation, you know, right-wing situation, or if it's a, a post-Christian, you know, Nazi situation. Both of these basically are saying, you don't need to think, we'll tell you what to do. In other words, like, you're di dissolving, you've got this post-materialist sort of orientation. And that goes along with a whole bunch of other things, you know, finding meaning in hating people, scapegoating people. It exists, you know, don't be in denial about it. And last but not least, not last but not least, there's the whole notion of the death wish and variations on the theme and Freudian themes that people actually want to die. You know, people don't actually like life. It's too confusing for them. It's too, it's too, uh, it's too complex, right? And if you think this is, you know, mad, you just, with all due respect, you're just not looking at the historical record. But, you know, just to give one classic example, is at the height of Napoleon, you might have seen this film of Borodino, which is out at the, at the moment, you know, the, the 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 hubris of the napoleon project was invading russia into in, in 1812 and they had this big battle borodino about seventy thousand people died you know it's massive horrendous thing and he had all these french cavalrymen and they're charging into battle and they're going um their big battle cries let's go and die 
I'm not Jane making this up. That's what they said. They said, let's go and die. In other words, it wasn't like, uh, let's go and make loads of money. It's let's go and die because they were, they were in this, this um, manic, cultic sort of psychic space of going, you know, the, the Napoleon project, the French, French project, whatever it is, the Republican project, that's what it is. And we're, we're, we don't care whether we're going to, you know, freeze to death in the Russian winter and all the rest of it. So I want to give like an example. I've got like this somewhere. I don't know where it is, but I'm going to give this example anyway. Um, oh, yeah. I, I might have mentioned this in a previous episode, so apologies I'm repeating myself. But something that brought this home to me was there's a Green Party leader in Germany and um, he was going to go to the miners and probably simplifying somewhat, but as I understood it, he was going to go to the miners, right? This guy's like a philosopher lecturer, so it's not, he's not going to be that cool as far as East German miners are concerned. And he goes to the miners and he says, I'm going to promise you something. Well, first of all, these miners have been let down by everyone, you know, communists, the capitalists, so they're not really going to believe the guy. <clears throat> number one, he tries to promise something to them. And number two, he says, oh, you know, we're going to have this green revolution and you're going to be okay, right? In other words, he's using the neoliberal frame, you know, which, which is saying you, you're going to be okay. You're going to be on the same income. You're going to get another job and it's all going to be fine, right? Number one, he's lying to them. They're not going to be fine. They know they're not going to be fine, first of all, because the neoliberal system doesn't give a shit about them. And secondly, because the climate crisis is going to make everyone poorer like everyone, because it's going to be, that's the nature of it. You've gone too far. So all that, all that he's going to do is increase the alienation of these miners against the whole system and exacerbate this culture war whereby these miners are going to go, fuck that, we're going to go and vote for, you know, alternative for Germany because at least they aren't lying to us or either lying to us at least they're going to say something that's non-materialist which makes more sense i.e you know germany is great and all this sort of stuff right so the whole the whole notion of saying we're going to have a revolution we're going to have a green transformation and everyone's going to be richer is totally stupid all it's going to do is create fascism uh, because fascism is going to come in with a far more viable uh, ideology i.e a post-materialist one so, you know, the, we talked about this having to happen before the revolution, but after the revolution, it's the same idea. That if, if, if the leadership and the whole revolutionary project degenerates into a materialist, individualist orientation, it's just shooting itself in the foot. It has to create this vibrant, fun, dare I say it, but non-materialist like culture, you know, it can't be all Calvinist, you know, on a duty sacrifice that's going to be part of it but it's also going to be let's go and have some fun but it's going to be fun without much money which is fine because you can have loads of fun without much money dare i say it uh and that's going to be like the culture so that's going to man in, in the longer term what we're looking at then is you know community events banquets music festivals uh religious ceremonies you know we've been talking about this a minute ago and then this is going to be like underpinned by this new democratic culture. So you're not going to have the big man Stalin, right? You can have the prophetic source figure, you know, someone like me by, 
you know, dare I say it, or, you know, hopefully someone better than me, <laughs> but someone who doesn't have any power but has some moral authority or spiritual authority or, you know, is basically a decent person that is charismatic and they're going to, you know, guide people to this, uh, this new, new model of leadership which doesn't have formal sort of hierarchical power. Um, secondly, there's going to be this assembly culture where people are going to say, yeah, we don't think what's going on is great, but we're going to have these dialogical uh, spaces. And then that's going to move into how we organise not just social life, but economic life. I've not talked about much about this because, you know, I've only got a limited amount of time. But there's a whole project here. There's a whole project here of saying, look, you know, the jobs are going to be pretty shitty, right? Because climate crisis is happening and the jobs aren't going to pay much. But what we can ch change is the atmosphere and the culture of the workplace itself so people can participate in how it's constructed within these objective limitations and you know there's going to be set people on the management if it's a big company and there's a whole literature about it uh, but the the thing we're contributing here is this notion these dynamics of sociability that people people the the construction of the of the workplace is is humanized and that you know that's a big subject Okay, so that's the broad direction of travel. You've got the the crisis management bits, you've got the citizens' assemblies, you've got the dialogue bit, you've got the culture bit. But really, like, all this has to be consolidated. The other big piece here is, so what, how the hell is this all going to work formally in terms of formal power? So it's not like the formal power bit is all there is. It's not like the culture dialogical bit is all there, all there is. This is one whole meta strategy, which is all these things working together. So the next episode is really going to look at this hard power problem, which is who makes the decisions after the revolution. Okay, thanks.